Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, Joe McCarthy. Hello and welcome to episode eight of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that races through post-war history and the reasons why the world today is as it is. All done through the medium of a number one smash hit for Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce, this is Katie Puckrick. Katie, as always, our minds are ready to be expanded, astonished, quite possibly blown. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if I have high hopes for my mind being blown because today's topic is um, a fellow who has left quite a stain on American politics and American history, Senator Joseph McCarthy. He was the uh, senator from the state of Wisconsin in the late 40s, and he became the public face of the Red Scare, uh, basically uh, going after people tarnishing their name by calling them communists, which you think, what's the big whoop about that anyway? But basically, it was a way to throw his power around and uh, be a little bit of a mini Stalin, from what I understand. Because some of these references we get from Billy, we don't know much about, do we? Or certainly I don't. And then you get the big ones, you get the bangers. McCarthy's a big one. Yeah, he's a big one. Did you have a, a awareness of him when you were a youngin? Probably because of what McCarthyism stands for and everything that's been going on in the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years in America, you get a lot of references to McCarthyism, don't you? Yeah. It's a different scare and different people in power, but the tactics he's used, some of the things he tried to do seem to have come bouncing back. Yeah, um, that's an interesting point because when I was growing up, my parents were from an older generation. I was the youngest of four and I was the youngest by far. So in fact, they were a really good reference point for that whole Cold War era. And I remember my mother saying to me about, you know, McCarthyism was a a dark time uh, in America. And, you know, it was very clear by the time I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s that, you know, he was a bad guy and America had learned their lesson. And that whole idea of uh, damning somebody's entire career because of they were politically maybe a little bit to the left, like those times had gone. And well, guess what? They're back. They've been remixed and uh, they're top of the charts right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're just kind of spitballing here. We don't really know the the nitty gritty, (laughs) but thank goodness our guest today is somebody who knows all about Joe McCarthy, Senator Joe McCarthy on a molecular detail. He is Dr. Josh Hollins. He is a lecturer in U.S. history at the UCL Institute of Americas. Welcome, Josh. Thank you, Katie. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, wonderful. So um, what do you think about uh, our vague summation of Joe McCarthy? Do you think that's sort of an accurate picture? I think you're absolutely right to say that McCarthy has kind of cast a long shadow over the course of the 20th century. And I don't think it's a coincidence that other elements um, who are around McCarthy also appear in Billy Joel's song, right? So uh, Roy Cohn, uh, the Rosenbergs and others. I think it had a, a huge impact on, on many people's lives and in popular culture as well. What's he looking like? Like, If I try and picture Joe McCarthy in my head, what sort of man was he? What does he dress like? What does he sound like? I think perhaps slightly unkempt is, is how I might describe him. For the, for the time period, if you think about you know that Mad Men era, the sharp suits, the hats, um, perhaps someone like Richard Nixon fit that bill a bit more. He was a bit more sharp. And... Um, I think you would recognise his voice if you heard it on the radio. He was slightly shouty, and he he certainly, in the hearings that were really a, a big part of the Red Scare in the, in the 1940s and 1950s, he was very much willing to um, shout back when, um, say, a, a fellow um, senator or a congressman or someone from the army uh, was answering him. He was very willing to answer back to cut them down and I think that really did feed into an image of him as a bully and as someone who was really not willing to be told that he was wrong. Was he verbally adept like was he you know was he quite good with the waspish quips or was he just more like a mean person? Uh, Well I think perhaps this is maybe one of the reasons why he did translate is I think he was able to pull some of those people around him, the waspy types, the elites, the, you know. Yeah. Um, but actually, it was really that populist image that he portrayed that really had um, people interested in him as well, that he seems to be part of this elite, but also challenging them. Mm. I'm interested in how Joseph McCarthy even came to power was he somebody who was power crazy and was just kind of looking for an angle to latch onto, like in an opportunistic fashion and he just thought ah read the room people don't like pinkos i'm jumping on that almost certainly you know he's elected in in 46 47 has a very um not particularly interesting career not particularly powerful in the senate and there's these speeches that all republicans are due to make right on, on Lincoln's birthday in 1950 and all the top places all the big cities that you know of in California in New York in Chicago they all get the big guns of the Republican Party your Nixons and, and so on and he goes to Wheeling West Virginia now no offense to, <laughs> to West Virginia or Virginia or, or any of those places wider Virginia yeah wider all the Virginias you know um, I am from Virginia did you know that I'm not from West Virginia. That is a different it's state. Different. It's an actually separate state. But go continue. Okay. Um, Carefully. It's interesting that he is sent to Wheeling, West Virginia, right? That are not one of these top big cities. And no one's expecting him to come out with anything interesting or let alone coherent, right? Um, he's not really seen as someone that might even be re-elected in, in 50. Like, is his speech even going to be recorded? Because it's at the Republican Women's Club. 
is it even broadcast on radio? No, no. But so this is the start of the Red Scare in this in this sort of nowhere town he sowed the with seed. no one listening. Yeah, it's interesting in in the sense that he turns up with something, and whether it's off the cuff or not, that is so compelling to the whole nation. He says that you know I have a list in my hand of two hundred and five communists in the State Department, and he actually he didn't have anything in his hand, and he also didn't have um, any list. And the only reason we know about this speech really is because news um, newspapers really followed him around the country when he went to do other speeches in in the next couple of days kind of saying well have you got the list and so we we get the speech um, later on and and the numbers change constantly i think he he goes from 205 to 57 i mean it's a decent reduction that isn't it you're thinking if i'm listening to joe mccarthy at that point and i'm intrigued katie i've gone what 200 200 communists yeah yeah and traitors then, yeah and then oh hang on it's 50 what's happened to the other 150 oh people don't keep track in those days it's not like you know there was no social media so there weren't like fact checkers or you know citizen fact checkers I'm interested in um, just pulling back to see the bigger picture, Mm. how commies were considered the bogeymen of the 40s and 50s. I mean, the average American, you know, having been an average American, you know, (laughs) living amongst other average Americans, you're not really confronted so much uh, unless you're interested in reach out about the rest of the world. It's not like living in Europe where, you know, countries are small and you can pop over to one without too much hassle. People are pretty insulated and in a bubble in America. So they wouldn't really know or care, I would have thought, about communists unless it was rammed down their throats. So it seems to me that somebody, and obviously McCarthy was part of this movement, just decided that communists were a convenient bad guy to kind of make people forget about other problems, perhaps? I mean, was it a mask for a different kind of enemy or a way to distract people? Certainly, anti-communism had been ramping up in the 1940s. And I think it's important to see Joseph McCarthy not as a lone actor here, right? Um, I said he was an opportunist earlier, because he really gets that sense that there is this anti-communist Red Scare building. And the, the wider context as well is quite important here. It's the post-war era. People are obviously aware that there is a Cold War going on. They feel that there is, um, you know, there's, there is potential for destruction and, and the war to really heat up. Of course, by the time that McCarthy makes his speech, um, the USSR has nuclear bomb capabilities. You have this wider kind of what, what you might call paranoia, right, that comes into the domestic sphere very much. And, and certainly the reason why I think uh, McCarthy really takes off is because he comes up with this very specific number, right? I've got 205 or then I've got 57. It, eventually he says, if I just find one communist, that's, you know, that it, it, proves it. He's, he's it. made. Convenient. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, the bar- said, I said 200, but one will do. Yeah, the, the bars are getting so low by then. Yeah, and so I think that's why it really um, begins to take off. And I know you mentioned before, Katie, about cultural elites as well, mm. right? I think it's in in fact more in the 1940s that we see more of a focus on those cultural actors. So the Hollywood Ten is one of the most famous, and that's uh, really kicks off around um, 47. And what's the Hollywood Ten? Tell us about that. Yeah, so they were um, writers, directors, uh, members of the the Screen Guild who were called to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, they're not convicted of being communists or doing anything particularly wrong. 
it's ex- not it's not against the law to be a communist, is it? No, not at all. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, but it's interesting because it's not even that. It's because they they plead the fifth. The Fifth Amendment says, you know, you you don't have to say anything if if it will criminalize you. Yes, and so they plead the fifth and say, I'm not going to answer that question. And it's more out of principle, really. It's saying. This is censorship. This is the kind of thing that you're you're actually accusing the USSR of. You're doing this right here in Hollywood. Um, and so they refuse to answer the questions and then they lose their work, their livelihoods. The Hollywood 10 actually go to jail for contempt of court, essentially, yeah. um, for refusing to answer the questions. And, and they ha- hold their ground. And it's people like um, Dalton Trumbo who... You know, they, they famously go on to write things like Spartacus. But under a pseudonym, Under right? pseudonyms, because they're, they're not able to find work. Now, it's interesting because those kind of what we might call cultural elites or, or the people that really had some form of kind of cultural influence, they're obviously targeted because of that influence. But even if you did nothing wrong, if you just took that principal stand, you, you might lose your livelihood, your job. Casey, we're looking at each other with sort of astonishment at yeah. some of this, aren't we? Like, it, seem, it seems impossible. But... All those slogans that go around the Red Scare, the, the, the idea of Reds under the bed and the enemy within, they're quite potent things, aren't they? So just wondering what it must have been like to live in that paranoid era where you know, the Soviet Union has done a nuclear test. Like We like to think, Casey, don't we, that had we been around that time, we would have gone, this is nonsense. But maybe we would have been swept up in it. I don't know. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, did, that's a good point. Did the average American buy into this was this sort of an attractive uh spooky time for them i mean because sometimes people sort of thrill to the you know they catastrophize they uh indulge in a little disasterbation and uh, (laughs) i was wondering if yeah did the americans really buy into the red scare well disasterbation is is a fabulous uh word that i must steal for a future uh text i'm sure but um I think the context is is key here for certainly for ordinary people. I think a lot of people did buy into the idea that there was a credible threat from the Soviet Union. Um, I, I want to lay a little bit of blame here on President Harry Truman, who I'm sure pops up elsewhere in your podcast. It's our very first episode. Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, Truman really sells the idea of the need to contain communism abroad, and in doing that, and really playing up the threat, he helps to kind of fuel that fire at home. Um, and so those that we might call cold warriors, so Richard Nixon and McCarthy and others, um, really argue that communism had to be contained and, and fought at home. It's some of those kind of cultural things that when we look back to the 1950s now, I think stand out. Um, obviously, in, in episodes of The Simpsons, right, Homer works in a nuclear power plant, but there's all these episodes where they're crouched under their desks um, doing these drills. Yeah, duck and cover. Duck and cover, yeah. Um, you know, shelters in basements and backyards. And that all feeds into that broader sense that America is at war and that there was a threat at home. Here's something I'm wondering, Josh. So there seems to be a lot more of a tie between McCarthy and the Kennedy family than you might expect from the Kennedy family's politics. So what's going on there? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think partly this is um, influence, right? And it's about access. And the Kennedy patriarch, so Robert Kennedy, JFK's dad, had been a very powerful kind of democratic player. He he really helps to get his sons elected. He has a really outsized influence. And Joseph Kennedy, the dad, puts pressure on McCarthy to have Robert Kennedy, JFK's younger brother, to be part of his legal team in the hearings. And McCarthy takes him on, but in in a more junior role. And 
and they end up traveling to to Wisconsin to to attend the funeral when McCarthy dies. And so I I do think that you see something at the top of society that even though it's fear-stricken and um, there's all kinds of issues with democracy here and rights, that even those at the top of society that we we now look back on and say held on to those ideals really failed in this era to live up to those ideals that they will later propel. And I think a lot of that has to do with power and influence. I am really discouraged by uh, the spinelessness continuing, obviously, in in American politics. But, uh, you know, not only do we see... um, dedicated Democrats, such as the Kennedys, throwing their lot in with McCarthy. But the fact that um, the president, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, was, uh, you know, implicitly kowtowing to Senator McCarthy's agenda. Um, he stood by passively, it seems, while while all this was going on, uh, while McCarthy was attacking Eisenhower's State Department. And it seems like he only discovered his cojones uh, <laughs> when McCarthy was going after the military. Can you develop that a little bit? Sure. Well, I think it's Harry Truman's Democratic presidency that's really under attack here. That notion that Democrats are disloyal, that they're harboring communists and so on. So you might have thought that when Eisenhower comes to power as the president, that someone like uh, McCarthy would roll back a bit. And he doesn't. And I think it's not polit- politically expedient for Eisenhower to go after McCarthy in this initial point, even though we know from um, his private documents that he's not happy with McCarthy, not happy that he's going after officials that Eisenhower respected in the Democratic Party. Oh, so he wasn't, he didn't like him personally, is mm. what you're saying. Yeah. That's interesting. So it was politically convenient for the president to just take a back seat and let McCarthy be the attack dog. But then there got got to a point where enough was enough. Yeah, perhaps the dog begins to bite you after a while. We're going to zip out for a quick ad break, but stay put and we'll be right back. Well, it's a quiz, but this time it's a podcast. Yes. With me, Mikita Oliver. I was going to go with that at first, you know, I really was. I love a quiz. I'm nervous. Oh, how many edges does a 20p have? Oh. Uh. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, I'm doing so badly. We will quiz, we will chat, and then we will repeat forever. Just search Quiz Chat Repeat in your podcast app. Those were the adverts. This is Katie Puckwick. I do remember, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I, a couple years ago, was looking through all of these very poignant letters that my mother had written to my father before they got married in the late 40s. And she was living in Washington, D.C., and he was based, uh, he was in the Air Force, and he was based in Obermagau in Germany. And she was talking about the chatter that was around at the time in the late 40s, like 47, 48, that people are worried about World War III, that there was talk about that and that things were still very volatile and unstable. So I just remembered that when we were talking about this. So mm. I think it would have been really prevalent back then. Yeah, certainly. I think that's part of what um, the appeal of Joseph McCarthy as well, because there is that wider sense of we might be heading to World War Three. Why has China fallen? Why has, you know, from the American perspective, why have 
all of these people that you know they should be our allies or we should have influence in their sphere not the soviet union you know i think mccarthy's speech is really interesting in wheeling west virginia because he really says you know america is is the greatest nation in the world where, where do we hear this yeah we, it keeps coming up exactly and and we love hearing it us americans like sure we are yeah well, that's us <laughs> yeah so he you know he's going america is the greatest nation in the world we just won world war Two, but china has fallen and we're not winning abroad and you know they're going to go on to Korea and not win that war fall into communism you mean yeah yes. Com- yes right and so they create this compelling narrative of well why why does this happen and he says in his speech you know before he comes on to the 205 people that don't exist he says <laughs> it's because there's people in the state department that are purposely trying to wreck our foreign policy goals oh, and gosh. i mean that's the you know what trump was doing during his whole time ruining ruining america was uh you know talking about the deep state and get and basically disemboweling the state department which is now in the process of uh, you know painfully being built up again but um yeah it's uh it's the old playbook oh absolutely i think you know we can certainly see um a lot of links between trump and and the previous era uh, eras um so a prominent historian of the united states um richard hofstadter uh, writing not too long after the mccarthy era this is in, in the mid 60s he describes what he calls as the paranoid style in american politics and what hofstadter meant was a politics that evokes the sense of heated exaggeration suspiciousness and conspiratorial fancy and i think you know if our recent history is anything to go by we may well indeed say that trump fits that bill right he um, has sought to whip up support by targeting black lives matter protesters muslims migrants and rather than russia being the problem uh, he has focused on conspiracies within the u.s um conspiracies the 2020 election was rigged um and you know he refuses to distance himself from um QAnon. QAnon. You knew what I was looking yeah, to pronounce yeah. there. Yeah. QAnon um, conspiracy theories, which are even more outlandish. Oh, I mean, than it's McCarthy. like it's like fan fiction. It's like whatever you want. You know, one day you find out that Beyonce is ruling the world, and she's very <laughs> very interested in cannibalism or something. And then, yeah, you get some flat earthers in there and some anti vaxxers and it's a pretty toxic little soup. Wow. So is he? Might sound a, bit a strange thing to ask. But is he happy when he's doing all this? Because it clearly works for him. It makes him, it turns him from a pretty average senator who isn't doing anything to this global figure, not just a, a huge figure in America. But does it work for him personally? Because he was a heavy drinker, wasn't he? Yeah, so, I, well, I think, you know, the media needs to take a little bit of the of the blame for McCarthy as well, really. Well, because um, it was just a great story. Like, if you're trying to sell papers, Katie, some guy coming out with these amazing conspiracy theories is... Is great. Oh yeah, it's an early clickbait. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one one historian describes McCarthy as really a, a media demagogue. That um, you know, that he thrives on the press, and the press thrive on him. And I mean, you can see links here with other politicians and and people that might go on to presidencies. Mm. That um, <laughs> in fact, you know, it's really the press that helps to fuel this. There's this sense that he is selling newspapers that people people are interested because obviously there might be a legitimate issue at stake here um, that's feeding into this fear and perhaps paranoia of the post-war era um, but it's really the press that helps to to push this forward right josh so it sounds like mccarthy's quite successful 
So why then does he take on the US Army? He's made all these accusations against the State Department. It's almost like he just needs a bigger target. Well, partly it, it might be a bigger target, and I think there's a sense that he's a little bit out of control here now. That um, you know, the, the media has fed his image; he's feeding the media, and um, he's able to keep getting that attention that he kind of craves. And so, I mean, part of the issue with McCarthy is that some of the checks and balances in the United States that are supposed to protect democracy really didn't step in. So Eisenhower kind of lets him get away with it for so long. Why? Um, I think because he, well, he's he's also partly um, afraid of of kind of tackling someone within his own party. They're both in the Republican Party. I am not kind of suggesting here that um, Eisenhower was in any kind of um, conspiracy here, but I think there's certainly that sense of fear went all the way to the top of society. But at this point, when McCarthy tackles or charges the army. Um, Eisenhower really turns around and says that enough is enough. Now. Well, yeah, he's and he was a, a general. So, you know, he's like, wait a minute, you're talking about people in my family. Mm. Yeah, he's like, State Department, okay, have a pop. <laughs> whoa, 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 me. It's interesting how um, the fact that people can see with their own eyes uh, this man who's just being a glorified thug and a playground bully and just lying in people's faces you know to the to the extent that there's the the army legislator just saying have you no decency sir at long last um that has an effect on americans whereas i know i keep coming back to this but i'm traumatized by the whole trump (laughs) regime but you know trump being you know lying in people's faces you know on television that didn't seem to make a dent on his supporters but i guess uh people had a a more firm set of sense of right and wrong i suppose as as well we're so used to tv now that tv is part of every everyone's lives maybe katie i don't know josh did it if you were buying your first TV set in that post-war oh, period, yeah. that TV had this... It was brand new. Yeah, it's like hearing from the pulpit. So it had this authenticity right. that you would believe what you saw in it. I don't know. I think that's a really good way to put it. You know, um, It's important to remember how influential and how fast um, television spread. At the start of the 50s, three million people um, owned television sets. By the end of the 50s, 55 million people owned television sets and, and that's a huge proportion of uh, American society and you know the McCarthy hearings were smack in the middle of that decade and so I think you're right to say that television played a role and the, and the fact that um, people really trusted what they were seeing and for the first time they really got a sense that you know McCarthy wasn't perhaps the the kind of hero that might have been portrayed or you can obviously read into things in your own kind of narrative when you read newspapers now they were seeing it um, for the first time with their own eyes. Yeah, with with context. I'm interested in um, his targets, in McCarthy's targets, because uh, obviously his first big uh, prey were the so-called communists, uh, the, the red under the bed, and uh, he widened his net, obviously, to include uh, various departments of uh, the American government and also the military, but was he looking at other groups of people as well? Well, I think 
McCarthyism and the Red Scare really permeated all of society and teachers and lecturers, um, public and civil servants lose their, their jobs. It's terrifying. Auto it? workers, oh. because auto workers are, are manufacturing, their unions are kind of targeted, right? Oh, because unions are considered to be lefty yeah. slash pinko. Yeah. And then what about uh, other people on the margins of society? So as as I mentioned earlier, you know, you have this notion of domestic containment and historians like uh, Erica Ryan have really done an interesting job at demonstrating how this actually specifically impacted gender relations. And so the state also ramped up its effort to excise uh, sexual dissidents, um, gay men, bisexuals, lesbian women, uh, gender nonconformists in this era. And we get a sense of a, what we call a lavender scare. Um, so you've got the red scare and you've got the lavender scare. Mm, pretty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it, it runs concurrent but overlaps with the red scare. And so um, LGBT people are targeted for removal from um, jobs in government and education because they are seen as a security threat. And so um, it's this notion that they're not necessarily communists it's that they could be blackmailed because they're doing something illegal or seen as abhorrent, right? Oh, um, they're already. They, they, it's considered that they're hiding something already, a big secret, so they're vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And so this vicious circle emerges where you're not necessarily doing anything wrong, but you have something to hide. And so you're, you're worried that that might be outed. You're also worried that um, you, you could be targeted by, say, Soviet spies, but it's actually that lavender scare, that which is far more effective at removing people from the State Department and so when they're doing these interviews and trying to work out if you're loyal to the country it often transpired that people were um, had engaged in in same-sex sexual activities or or lived with um, same-sex partners and so on and it was more those who were outed and ousted in the State Department rather than communists and so it has this um, wider effect as well. Katie this is sounding really weird to me because so much of American culture seems to hark back to the 50s. It's like pure Americana, isn't it? The wealth is starting to come after the the Great Depression is in the rearview mirror and people are getting washing machines and TVs and cars and it's it's perfect America. But you hear this sort of stuff, how restrictive it must have been to live in that era. There's a, a huge number of Americans who can't be the people they want to be. I think uh, the tension in post-war America was the renewed prosperity in the country. So you had all of those material goods and you had an advanced quality of life. And also with media and television and film, we were exporting that quality of life, basically rubbing everybody else's noses in it. So the rest of the world, you you poor beleaguered Brits over yeah. here were like, oh, I'd like a hamburger and a milkshake one day. With our bad teeth and our Ration books. Yeah, with your rickets and uh, <laughs> um, and your lard or your margarine, whatever you had. But uh, at the same time, and then, of course, you had uh, minorities and uh, women who'd seen advances during the wartime because they had, you know, they were able to work and they were given more status and they, you know, were obviously contributing to the war effort. And then they were being, it was like, oh, black soldiers coming back from the front? No, don't get ideas above your station. You know, you got to wash dishes. And women coming back from the front, you got to wash dishes too. So I think there was um, a, a lot of tension there. So I think just as you say, Tom, people weren't really allowed to be who they wanted to be and, and who they could be uh, to the detriment of America. 
it's interesting. The only people who could be what they wanted to be were, were horrible people like Joseph McCarthy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think perhaps at the top of society, it's that sense that, yes, it's a prosperous time in the post-war era. You have this uh, notion of a military-industrial complex, but you know, Eisenhower saying, we're going to keep ramping up production. Oh, he's to, the one that came up with that term, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. So he's saying, you know, we're going to fight the, the war, We're going um, but also we just need to keep growing the economy in this way. Um, but at the same time, you know, those new ga- the gains that were made for, for women um, during the war, for, for African-Americans, also for for, for gays and lesbians and you know going away from home small towns perhaps to the coasts meeting other people creating communities what you can kind of sense at the top of society and certainly from kind of the more conservative elements of, of the republican party is a sense that they needed to push back on that yeah and i think the red scare and the lavender scare of course feeds into that um you know so uh, women, as you say, are going to have to return to the home. African Americans are going to be—they're uh, going to try to to push back um, into segregation. Right? You have a sense that something is stirring here, and certainly in the fifties, you see the kernels of the um, civil rights movement. Um, but also, you you get that sense that the the top of society is pushing back on this. Katie, it just sounds so stifling to me. Like, if you think about the sixties, the sixties now feels to me like America starts breathing properly again. Well, I think not least because women don't have to wear girdles anymore. So literally, they're breathing again. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, maybe even the beginning of Americans being able to breathe again possibly started with the downfall of Joseph McCarthy, because that is when perhaps people were employing a little bit more critical thinking when they realized we shouldn't accept everything that we're being spoon-fed by the person who's shouting the loudest. Yeah, indeed. So he's censured by the um, Senate, where he's a senator, and and essentially censure means that... um, you, you no longer have the sphere of influence. You're, you're not, they don't kick you out of the Senate, but you no longer have the same influence. That so you, it's a huge deal, and yeah. it's not happening to many other senators? No, not Oh, it's like ba- basically being cancelled, right? Yeah, Is it? yeah that's okay. a good point, yeah. So, and that happens in the December of 54. So it's a very rapid decline from the army hearings that happened just before the summer to the December when um, he's censured. And, and after that, there's a, a, a rapid spiral, I think probably into depression and alcoholism, and uh, I believe he dies of, of hepatitis. And he's not an old man. He's 48 when he dies. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's probably he'd done enough damage for a lifetime. Yeah. Probably just good enough that he made an exit. <laughs> yeah. And well, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I think that analogy that you had earlier of America being able to breathe again in this in this post McCarthy era perhaps is a, is, is a good one. Um, Ellen Schrecker, who's kind of a key historian of the McCarthy era, says that in assessing the legacy of McCarthyism, we really need to look at the things that didn't happen. So the movies that weren't made, the books that were not published, the oh, political movements yeah. that were not organised, um, policies and ideas that had previously been supported by, say, communists, but were also supported by other leftists and liberals, like President Harry Truman supported universal health care. But those kind of notions disappear from mainstream political debates because oh. really, you know, McCarthy has narrowed that political terrain. He squeezes them out, doesn't he? Yeah. And I think that's probably the, the lasting legacy um, of McCarthyism really is that narrowing of the American political 
um, terrain, people who shared even vaguely left-leaning or progressive views were marginalised. Um, but many of the things that they advocated for, so an end to racial and gender prejudice, better wages and working conditions, these are still issues that remain central to inequality and injustice in, in America today. In my mind, Katie, I'm now almost imagining an alternative America where McCarthy doesn't come along. And some of those issues you just mentioned there, Josh, that are still huge issues in modern America, aren't there because society develops in a different way without the weight of McCarthy. Tom, I'm feeling after everything that Josh is telling us that I hate McCarthy even more. Like I started, I came into this thinking he was kind of a bad egg. And now I just think he was such a pernicious influence. And um, it's sad, but hateful people are quite seductive like it's quite easy to hate it's quite easy to plant those seeds of uh suspicion and fear and that's the thing that that takes hold and we're still pulling out the the roots of these weeds so many years later in america and across the world yeah and it's the influence of as we go through this podcast and we find out about different people and about different aspects of american life you just see these threads don't you so we talked about Walter Winchell. There's a Roy Cohn connection there. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to talk about the Rosenbergs yeah. in a few weeks' time. And the Rosenbergs, who were these, these you know, these, these uh, Russian spies, that feeds into McCarthyism. And then we've got an episode to do on Roy, Roy Cohn himself at some point. You know, this pernicious influence all the way through that sort of late 40s, early 50s, into the 60s. And then Roy Cohn is the man who teaches Donald Trump everything he knows. Yes, although I have to say, even Roy Cohn met his match in Donald Trump, as uh, as we'll find out. But he, he found that he Donald Trump was even colder than Whoa. he was. Because so, you're saying something, isn't it? Saying something. Hey, do you feel, we always say this at the end of the pod, do you feel that, that Billy Joel is justified in sticking Joe McCarthy because I've got absolutely no doubt in my mind he's he's a massive figure. Yeah, he uh, Billy was not uh, reaching for this one. It, this was a this was it's a, a gimme for Billy. It's this a one, low it? hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously deserved his place in the song. Yeah, and Josh, if you were to sum him up, Senator Joseph McCarthy, sum him up in one single sentence for him because I'm like Katie, I've just got this horrible horrible man in my mind it's bully like you say Katie a playground bully yeah playground bully yeah I think that's that's a good way to put it I think this was a dark era in US history but that play that kind of playground bully um, McCarthy really used that environment to propel his own career um, but I think it's also important to note that you know he was by no means alone he was aided by other opportunist politicians and democratic structures really failed to rein in his his bullying and his recklessness it seems quite neat to me, Katie, that our next episode is about Richard Nixon. Oh, gosh. We have a, a real rogues gallery going oh, on right so now. Oh, so many wrong Yeah, so many wrong so many bad eggs. Well, thank you, Josh Holland, so much for your expertise and for uh, colouring this very dark picture for us. Yeah, and thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Well, that's all we have in our tidy little package for you this week in We Didn't Start the Fire. Did you like it? Please tell us. I do love a stroke. Feel free to leave a review. Certainly subscribe. Come on, prop us up. You can also share your thoughts with complete strangers by writing to fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk and we will spill it to the world. (laughs) 
Pod Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcast, And remember, don't believe everything you read. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.